Welcome back to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkoff, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. Last week, after threatening to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act for seven years, we watched Republicans fail to even hold a vote for their health care replacement. Thank you very much. Uh, we were very close. Uh, it was a very, very tight margin. We had no Democrat support. We had no votes from the Democrats. Uh, they weren't going to give us a single vote, so it's a very difficult thing to do. I've been saying for the last year and a half that the best thing we can do, politically speaking, is let Obamacare explode. It is exploding right now. Trump obviously passed the blame to everybody but him, and I'm honestly surprised that he didn't find a way to blame Barack Obama for the failure of this bill. I mean, I think it, he would say, if you were to ask him, that it's Barack Obama's fault. Au <laughs> My mom always said that. <laughs> like, at its core, because he's the one who would even dare to pass the Affordable Care Act in the first place. And if we had never passed it, we never would have had to repeal and replace it. That's pretty much what his logic is. He said instead that he is going to wait and watch with glee as Obamacare explodes in its face. And then when Democrats are willing to work with Republicans, they'll work on a new bill, which is a really funny scapegoat because Democrats don't even have majority. Like, that wasn't the reason at all that it didn't pass. Republicans could not reach Democrats consensus. can't do anything. They can't like, do they couldn't anything. have stopped this if it was going to pass. They even if they wanted to, it. they couldn't have. <sighs> I feel like I'm going to get all, made a lot of fun of for saying au fond, but it's what I meant, and there's no better word to say it. Later on in the episode, we'll be talking about Arkansas's plan to execute eight inmates in 10 days with Diane Russ Tierney, the executive director of the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. In the focus on the drugs and the rush, we're doing what the death penalty always does, which is to run roughshod over people's rights. And in one second, we're going to do our week in weenies. But before we do that, I just want to say congrats to me and Prachi on our 10th episode. <laughs> It's a really big it achievement. It's a big deal. It's a, what did you imagine 10 weeks ago when you we know, started on this journey together? And 10 weeks, 10 weeks ago, I think I thought at today, I think I thought I would be like 10 pounds lighter, but not nearly as happy. <laughs> <laughs> Just for being honest. It's also my 10, I think, 10th week at Jezebel. Well, it's definitely like not 11. less than your 10th week at Jezebel. It's definitely not less than my 10th week at Jezebel. Congrats, Prachi. Thank you. I'm still gainfully employed. And now, our week in weenies. So our first weenie of the week is a weenie we have featured so many times before, I can't even keep track. Uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan, welcome back. As He's like an honorary weenie in I think, chief at this point. I think we should start having a ticker. I don't think you can have tickers on podcasts because it's like a visual thing. But like how many weeks in a row has Paul Ryan been a weenie of the week? We can award him some type of acknowledgement. No, but you know how it's like it's been one week since we broke a glass at like a restaurant or something. It's been like 10 days since we broke a glass. <laughs> it's like it's been five weeks since Paul Ryan has been the, a weenie straight. You know what? Well, yeah, let's let's start keeping we'll a get tally. It, of that. We'll get it started. We're, we're going to start the tally on Paul Ryan's weenie-ness. Yeah. So what did Paul Ryan do this time? Well, House, the, Paul Ryan has been the champion of Trump care of the American Health Care Act. Last week, he was basically running around trying to get the consensus amongst Republicans to support this bill. They needed 215 votes of, out of 
Republicans have the majority uh, with 237 votes total. He was struggling to get 215. And finally, at the last minute on Thursday, the vote was supposed to happen and it was delayed. And then it was canceled for the day. And then that night, on Thursday night, Paul Ryan scrambling around to get support amongst the House Freedom Caucus, which is a very like ultra-conservative contingent of Congress. And so Paul Ryan snuck in this really terrible four-page amendment in which he basically said that insurance was going to cut coverage of all these essential health benefits that include like prenatal care and hospitalization and emergency visits and prescription drugs and a whole bunch of things. And it was to appease the really, these ultra conservative members of Congress. But then on Friday, when it came time for the vote, he couldn't get enough support amongst Republicans. And the health care bill failed spectacularly. It didn't even reach a vote. And in the press conference, this is what Paul Ryan said. You've all heard me say this before. Moving from an opposition party to a governing party comes with growing pains. And well, we're feeling those growing pains today. We came really close today, but we came up short. I spoke to the president just a little while ago, and I told him that the best thing I think to do is to pull this bill, and he agreed with that decision. I will not sugarcoat this. This is a disappointing day for us. Doing big things is hard. So he actually admitted that Republicans didn't really do much for the past eight years, and now that they're in charge, guess what? It's hard to have responsibility to get things done. The thing that I find the dickiest about this is that in order to make a bad bill more appealing, he made it worse for every person. He was like, oh, let me let me add an amendment to make Republicans like this that alienates people and makes it easier for them to die, just in general. Well, and the sh- really shocking thing about that is that he didn't even eliminate enough things to appease the ultra-conservative base that he needed to get. I mean, congrats to everyone for being worse than everyone else. What What is there to say? It's like a Russian doll of people being assholes. Our next weenie is Oklahoma State Rep. George Fout, who has written a bill, HB 1549, which, if passed, would prohibit the performance of abortion due to diagnosis of Down syndrome or genetic abnormality of the unborn child. And doctors who perform such abortions would lose their medical license and be fined up to $100,000. And part of the justification of the bill is that this kind of pregnancy is God's will, and who are we to stand in the way of God and his will? Um, So on March 21st, Democratic State Representative Corey Williams asked him if he thought Rape, which is not an exception in the bill, was also the will of God. And Fout replied, Well, you know, if you read the Bible, there's actually a couple of circumstances where that happened. And the Lord uses all circumstances. So the bill passed with 67 votes, and it's now moving on to the state Senate. But he also continues to double down on these statements. And in an interview with a local NBC affiliate, he said, Life no matter how it is conceived, is valuable and something to be protected. Let me be clear. God never approves of rape or incest. However, even in the worst circumstances, God can bring beauty from ashes. Just as a note, I do want to say that this man seems to really understand how God thinks. And, like, congrats to him for understanding it. Which brings us to our next and final weenie of the week. Devin Nunes. So Devin Nunes is a Republican congressman from California who chairs the House Intelligence Committee, which has given him a really important role right now because 
He's the he's the one chairing a committee that's currently investigating the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. Unfortunately, Devin Nunes is also Trump's like strong ally and supporter. He kind of seems like somebody who just wants to hang out with Trump all the time and be his best friend, but like isn't but like Trump doesn't pay any attention to him almost. He's like vying for Trump's attention. Basically, Nunes was amongst the Republicans we highlighted in our weenies last week, uh, who is more obsessed with the fact that somebody leaked information about the Trump campaign's alleged ties with Russia. He's more concerned about the leaks than about the actual ties with Russia. So last Wednesday, without any evidence, he stood in front of the White House and accused U.S. agencies of spying on the Trump transitions team, and then he wouldn't name his source. So somebody leaked information to Nunes, um, or so he claims, and then whoever that person is, by Nunes's logic, is also violating uh, the Espionage Act. Um, and then in his latest move on Friday, he abruptly canceled a hearing that was supposed to happen this week in which former Attorney General Sally Yates was going to testify about what she knew about the Trump campaign's ties to Russia before the committee. And basically, he didn't really give a reason for it either. So every step of the way, he is obstructing this investigation and showing a very clear bias towards Donald Trump. So now it's time for a very quick weenie cage match where we talk about who, which of the weenies is the worst weenie. It's really tough this week. I am not sure. I'm not sure. I think Paul Ryan has won the weenie contest a lot. And I always think that he's just like the epitome of the weenie. But I don't know. I think we can call it a draw this week. Just because it's like every single person is so driven by such icky motivations. I would say, I guess if I had to vote and put them in a hierarchy, I would choose Nunes because he is the like leading official in an intelligence committee that's looking into potential like treason. Sure. That's a and good point. And he's blocking it. And you know, he's clearly violating all, like, he's... He's violating a lot of ethical guidelines, at least, on how to conduct an impartial and meaningful investigation. And he's an elected official, so that's very dangerous. You know, when you're right, you're right. Devin Nunes, the winner of Weenie of the Week. time for our dick of the week, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchison. So this is specifically about the state's death penalty and how it's choosing to enforce it. Arkansas is planning on executing eight men in 10 days, which is has never been done before, at least as we do death penalty in our modern legal system. So the executions are set to take place from April 17th to 27th. And the eight men are a quarter of the entire state's death row. They were all convicted of murders between 1989 and 1999. It will require the state's Department of Corrections to execute two men every day via lethal injection, which is bad because it's insane, but also because doing multiple 
executions in one day increases the likelihood of human error. Usually people are given a day to for the families and also for the corrections workers to review procedure and to kind of recover from the first one. This is crazy. And the question is, why would the state do this, especially since they've been on death row for decades? Arkansas hasn't executed anyone since 2005, and only Texas has ever attempted to execute so many people in such a concentrated period of time. So before we go into exactly what's going on, and this topic really just like makes me so upset, Prachi, tell us why the death penalty has always been shitty and isn't just shitty right now. All right. So I would be glad to recount this <laughs> this okay. incredibly fraught and disturbing history. Um Going back, I mean, the death penalty has been a form of legal punishment pretty much forever. Um, The first legal code that contains it that, to our knowledge, is from the 18th century B.C., um, the Code of Hammurabi of Babylon. Um, But in the U.S., the concept of the death penalty came from England. So settlers brought this idea with them, and the first recorded instance of it being used was in 1608 when Jamestown settlers— found Captain George Kendall guilty of being a spy for Spain. And then in 1612, Virginia's governor at the time, Sir Thomas Dale, passed a very harsh set of penalties that applied the death penalty to like a range of different offenses. So here's an example of one of the punishments that was legal at the time. So a man who stole three pints of oatmeal was once punished by having his tongue punctured with a needle, and then he was chained to a tree until he starved. The appeal for the death penalty waxed and waned over the next century until it really lost, finally, public support in the 1950s. But this is the white people version of the history of the death penalty. We cannot talk about the death penalty without also talking about lynching which has occurred in this country since the era of slavery, and it continued well into the mid-1900s, like 1960s. And black people were executed without any due process. They were executed by mobs of white people, and the white people who were murdering them were rarely prosecuted for their crimes. And according to a 2015 report by the Equal Justice Initiative, there were 4,000 lynchings between 1877 and 1950 in 12 states in the South. And the Senate never passed any anti-lynching federal legislation, even though it was introduced many times. It failed. Professors Jordan and Carol Steiker have tied this phenomena of the death penalty to the lynchings in America's past in their book called Courting Death, the Supreme Court and Capital Punishment from Colonial Days to the Present. Jordan, who's a professor at UT Austin School of Law, told The New Yorker that basically the death penalty served as a substitute for lynching. He said that in The New Yorker that the number of people executed rises tremendously at the end of the lynching era, and there's still an incredible overlap between places that had lynching and places that continue to use the death penalty. I also just want to interrupt quickly. This sounds a lot like—I mean, they're obviously connected, but like the Michelle Alexander and other people arguing— that um, mass incarceration is the same as slavery, or it's just like the replacement for slavery. Absolutely. Yeah. And here's a statistic from from that time. So between 
1937 and 1967, nearly 90% of people who received the death penalty for rape were black. So part of the reason why this still exists in our court systems today is also because the, the Supreme Court, it's been challenged several times, but the Supreme Court has basically turned a blind eye towards the racism and evidence of racial bias. So they sort of acknowledge the legacy of racism in capital punishment in, the, in a 1972 case, Berman versus Georgia, in which they found that the application of the death penalty was discriminatory, it was too arbitrary, and they therefore considered it, quote, cruel and unusual, which would make it in violation of the U.S. Constitution. Justices were concerned with racial bias and cited that in their decision. That ruling actually halted the death penalty in America for the next four years. But then, there's always a but, (laughs) then several states, including Florida, Texas, and Georgia, took that and found ways to work around the ruling, and they basically started introducing sentencing guidelines. So things that would make the death penalty decision seem less arbitrary, they added things like aggravating and mitigating factors. And then in a 1976 case, when these laws were challenged, the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of the laws and said that the death penalty was now okay. So then it flourished after that, and the moratorium was basically lifted. Then in 1983, a professor named David Baldus published a major study on race and capital punishment, and he found that the death penalty was actually four times more likely if the victim of the crime was white and the defendant was black. So he found a very clear racial bias in how the death penalty was applied, and research since then has supported his finding So in a 1987 case, his research was brought up to the Supreme Court in a case called McCluskey versus Kemp. But in a five to four decision, the Supreme Court, they looked at the study and they argued that racial discrimination in the case of capital punishment does not violate the Constitution. So Justice Powell actually dismissed the racism, writing, quote, Apparent disparities in sentencing are an inevitable part of our criminal justice system. He later says he regretted his vote in the case, and maybe that's because he realized how racist it was. So today the death penalty is only enacted in about 16 counties across the country, mostly in the South and the West, but it still disproportionately affects men of color. For example, the current death row inmate population is 42% Black, even though Black people make up only 13% of the population. Okay, so today, here's the Arkansas case hinges on the drugs that they use in lethal injection. And lethal injection as a method has introduced a whole new set of issues for states really trying to execute their prisoners. So via injection, basically everybody uses three drugs. One drug to make the person unconscious and to sedate them and anesthetize them. And another drug to paralyze the muscles and cause respiratory arrest. And then a third drug to stop the heart. 
So obviously, many pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. and Europe that produce the drugs that are used for lethal injection don't want their drugs to be used for that because they're supposed to be pharmaceutical companies producing medicines to help people. But states keep trying to take the drugs and, like, secretly not say what they're going to use them for. So in 2011, the government seized Arkansas's supply of sodium thiopental, which is the first drug that is supposed to sedate them. And the purpose of that drug is to make the procedure painless. Um, And then in 2012, the Arkansas Supreme Court said that the state's capital punishment law was unconstitutional as it was written because the lethal injection protocol gave too much authority to the corrections department, which meant that capital punishment was still legal in the state, but there just wasn't a good way of, or there wasn't a legal way of doing it. In 2013, they said instead of using sodium thiopental, they would use phenobarbital, which is typically used to treat seizures in children and causes sedation and hypnosis as side effects, not as the intention of the drug. So they're just kind of like trying, I mean, phenobarbital is used in, in, in lethal injections, but it's not you're supposed to use. Um, The British company that sold Arkansas phenobarbital thought that it was going to be used for medical purposes. So again, misleading. And then a new state law in 2015 signed by current governor Asa Hutchison doesn't specify what drug is to be used in executions. And it also doesn't require the state to disclose the drugs they use or the provenance of those drugs. So after it was signed, Hutchison set execution dates for these eight inmates currently on death row and set to be executed within 10 days of each other in April, which have been stayed until now. So today, the state uses a drug called midazolam, which is a sedative more powerful than Valium, and it's usually used in colonoscopies and other basic procedures, but not surgery. It's like not an anesthetic. It's less than that. And it's also the World Health Organization put it on its model list of essential medicines. It's like a major important good medicine. And it's also been called the most frequently used benzodiazepine in the elderly. So this is a medicine that was invented for good. And Arkansas is using it for bad. So Arkansas's midazolam supply expires at the end of April. And that's why Asa Hutchinson is rushing to get the executions done. Like, it's not for any legal reason. It's because after that, they won't have the means to do it. He just really wants these people to die. He wants these people to die. He's like, oh, a time limit. It's so fucked up. (laughs) It, like, makes me crazy. So, okay, my Dazlam specifically was at first—the first time it was used was just as a backup drug in Ohio if the first drug that was supposed to sedate didn't work in 2009— But then more and more states started using it, too. And the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, Robert Dunham, said to the New York Times that this is kind of how the death penalty works. So the quote is, the way executions have proceeded in the U.S. has been, in a sense, through the herd mentality. One state does something and it appears to work and others hop on board. So among many fucked up things, which I keep saying fucked up and fucked up, the most fucked up thing is that my Dazlam has resulted in so many botched executions. Like, death penalty critics don't even think that this drug works as it's supposed to work. So some executions using My Dazlam have gone over fine, but others take hours. One reporter said in Ohio in an execution using it that the prisoner was, quote, coughing, gasping, and choking in a way I had not seen before at any execution. Dear God, that's— It's, like, it's so— It's basically government-sanctioned torture at that point. Oh, for sure. And people are call- people think that it is that. 
So another one in Arizona took two hours, so long enough for a federal judge to convene an emergency hearing about it as the prisoner died. So some states have agreed not to use midazolam or any other benzodiazepine for execution since you're not supposed to. And drug suppliers, the supplier of midazolam has said that it wouldn't supply the drug for that purpose. But just in general, it would certainly appear that these prisoners are suffering. But one of the fucked up things about lethal injection that I can't stop thinking about is that since one of the drugs paralyzes the person— like, you can't tell if they're suffering or not. Like, they could be suffering, but you can't see. And the proponents of the death penalty think that as long as you can't see that a person is suffering, it would appear that they're not suffering, which is— What kind of logic is that? I mean, it's logic for people who don't have empathy. Like, it's it's like, I don't feel bad about this. This is, a, a, this is like an attractive, aesthetically pleasing death, so it must be fine. The ACLU is obviously outraged about this. They say that when midazolam is combined with the two other drugs used during the execution, that it produces, quote, unspeakable pain before death. So on Monday, the eight inmates and their lawyers sued to halt the executions, and we will keep you updated about what happens with that. Now joining us is Diane Rust Tierney, Executive Director of the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. Diane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So our first question sounds really basic, but I think it's an important one. What is the purpose of the death penalty and is it effective? Well, you know, the purpose of anything that we do in our criminal justice system should be to enhance public safety. And that's the standard against which the death penalty needs to be evaluated. And the reality is that the death penalty does not enhance public safety. We have ample evidence of that. States that use the death penalty cannot boast of uh, lower homicide rates. And so, we, you know, that's really the, the heart of the problem. We, we have this thing that we keep doing, these executions, that aren't enhancing public safety. So in theory, it's supposed to enhance public safety, but in reality, it doesn't. So where does it still exist today and how is it applied? In cases. Well, the good news is that the death penalty overall is a, you know, a waning issue uh, in terms of the number of places that are actually engaging in executions. The death penalty is more and more confined to just a handful of places. And in 2016, we saw that, you know, the death penalty is in decline on a number of levels. That there were only 30 new death sentences that were imposed, uh, and that's the fewest that have been imposed uh, in any year. And it's actually confined to only, you know, a about 2% of all the jurisdictions in the country. So most of the country doesn't live in a place that has the death penalty. So it's a few counties where the death penalty continues to be used. So you started working on the death penalty, or at least so I read, briefly before McCleskey versus Kemp. Can you talk about that case and what ch- how your work changed? You're right. I, I started working on this issue shortly before the Supreme Court took up the case of McCleskey versus Kemp, which was a case that challenged the use of the death penalty, uh, that the fact that the, the, the single most significant factor in determining who gets a death sentence and who doesn't is race, and more specifically, the race of the victim. 
and, you know, having looked at almost 30 years of research where in state after state where there was the death penalty, uh, we saw that a person whose victim was white was more than two, three, four times more likely than someone whose victim was a person of color. That is what the death penalty was used for. So when the Supreme Court took up the case of McCleskey versus Kemp, I frankly thought I was going to have a very short career uh, in terms of fighting the death penalty. I said, you know, if the justices live in the world, they've got to understand what these statistics mean. And what these statistics mean is that we have a system uh, that we're very familiar with. When we think about things like Black Lives Matter, we have a system that fundamentally values life based on the color of skin, based on the color of the skin of the victim and based on the color of the skin of the defendant. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court apparently at the time didn't live in the world. And so they looked at this stark evidence uh, in Georgia that a person who killed a white victim was four more times likely to um, receive the death penalty than somebody else and concluded that that was not a constitutional violation. And so it turned out that my uh, efforts to uh, battle the death penalty would take a little bit longer than I had planned. And so we've been trying to work to, first of all, show people how discriminatory and wrong the death penalty is. And secondly, to really focus people's attention on the fact that it doesn't enhance public safety and there are things that do. So, you know, the, the McCleskey case is, is, a, is, is shocking for a number of reasons. It not only had an impact on the death penalty, but it set the, the tone and the law for challenges around sentencing with regard to race generally. It fundamentally did not give a constitutional protection to a systemic application of any punishment based on race. So a lot of the Supreme Court rulings on the death penalty, which has come up so many times in the past couple of decades, have come down to, from my understanding, the Eighth Amendment, which it seems that that's been used previously both to defend the death penalty and to challenge it. What does the Constitution say about the death penalty and why why does it still exist? The Constitution prohibits punishments that are cruel and unusual. And the Supreme Court has said that the standard for what is cruel and unusual is not static. It's not frozen in time. It's something that is an evolving standard, that as we become more enlightened, as we become more progressive, what punishment is allowed changes as we learn more about who we are and who we should be as people. And so that's why over the years, the court has outlawed the use of the death penalty for juveniles, for people under the age of 18. It outlawed the death penalty for people with intellectual disability because it looked at, and, and the interesting thing is the way the court interprets it, it, it looks at what we say and what we do. And so it looks at the number of states that actually are using the death penalty or actually imposing the, the punishment on a particular group of people. Uh, it looks at public opinion polls. It looks at the uh, senses in the larger international community. And that's why we believe that if the court were to take a look at the death penalty today, it would reach a very different conclusion than it reached uh, in 1977 when we had many states using the death penalty. We had public opinion supporting the death penalty. And we're in a very different place here, as I've said. It's only used in a few places. Public support for the death penalty has dropped dramatically. Public opposition has increased dramatically. And so we believe that we're at a point in time where we are saying and doing the things that would demonstrate to the court that the death penalty no longer is constitutional. So can we talk a little bit more specifically about what's going on in Arkansas? So the, I think the rush to execute the eight inmates is because of this drug, midazolam. 
Can you talk a little bit about like the importance of that drug, why it's so important in Asa Hutchinson's view to do these executions so quickly? This conversation about the drugs and the executions coming up in Arkansas is a little bit of a, a microcosm of the bigger problems with regard to the death penalty. Now, the governor is saying that we must do these executions because the this, this drug is going to expire by the end of April. And so they're going to rush this through so they can use these drugs before they expire. Leave that aside for a moment. What we really are seeing here is an example of not only outlier behavior, but government behaving badly. Now, why do I say that? Because part of what's happening with these states that are rushing to these executions, in particular in Arkansas, is that we're also seeing that these executions are veiled in secrecy, that that many of these states, most of the states actually, that are continuing with executions have passed laws that basically say, you know, we can use whatever drug we want, um, but we don't have to tell the defendant. And we don't have to tell you where we got it. And we don't have to tell you how much we paid for it. Now, we wouldn't have that in any other context. We couldn't have states buying state cars and saying, we're not going to tell you where we bought the car. We're not going to tell you how much we paid for the car. I mean, that's an example of government behaving badly to continue with a practice that has no no value to us. So that's one example of the problem in, in Arkansas. Another example is that this rush exemplifies a lack of respect for human beings, for people a lack of respect for the individuals that are being executed. And I want to get back to that in a minute because there was just a new report that came out this morning. But it also shows a lack of respect for the people who have to carry out these executions. You know, it's no small thing to think about actually killing two people a night over a period of 10 days. And recently, about 23 former wardens have come out and sent a letter to the governor saying, you know, you can't do that to your people. It's a real thing when you kill people. And it has long-standing detrimental impact on people. It is traumatizing. And many of the people uh, who wrote to the governor spoke specifically of the specific harm to themselves and the people on the executions teams. And then in this rush to justice, we're also seeing violations of due process. There was a report that just came out this morning from the Fair Punishment Project at Harvard University Law School. And they found that five of the eight men that are scheduled to be executed either have development disabilities, or serious mental illness. We found in each of these cases or uh, that, that these people had absolutely terrible legal representation. Their lawyers were drunk. Their lawyers were suffering from their own mental illness. And so in the focus on the drugs and the rush, we're doing what the death penalty always does, which is to run roughshod over people's rights. These are not people who, given an opportunity to, to present it to the court, who probably should be executed. You know, there's a person there who thinks he sees ghost dogs walking around. And the court has already said that if you're that disabled, if you don't know whether you're going to be executed or not, whether you're going to, whether you're being punished or not, you constitutionally cannot be executed. But in this rush, all of that's getting lost in the, in the shuffle. A few of the inmates sued to halt the execution, saying that the compressed schedule violates their rights for clem- for proper clemency review. Do you think that that suit has any chance of doing anything? I'm hopeful. The other problem with the death penalty, and as I said, it runs roughshod over the Constitution. It runs roughshod over our rights. It runs roughshod over people, is that in this rush, it's really hard to turn this train around. But I'm hopeful. You know, we stay hopeful. That, you know, that that somehow the governor will listen to people whose jobs it has been to carry out the law. I mean, one of the observations I think that was made in one of the press rooms is that, you know, politicians are big, you know, some of them are still, 
you know, big on hawking the death penalty, but they're not there doing the dirty work. And so, you know, I'm hopeful that the, 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 the governor might be touched by the people saying, look, you are forcing people as part of their jobs to kill people, to subject themselves to trauma. And by the way, you don't even have a plan for how you're going to address that. We hope he'll hear that. We hope he'll hear that you have among these people. Um, this is not just a group, you know, folks. These are each individuals, and each individual has a legal, significant legal issue that needs to be heard. And so we're hopeful. Uh, but it, this is very troubling, and and it's very troubling, particularly in light of the fact that, you know, we believe that the death penalty right now is probably unconstitutional. So earlier you spoke to reforms that you recommend that would be effective. Can you tell us what those are? The reality is that we already know what things will keep people safe, what will enhance community safety. And we need to really focus that. And the death penalty takes our focus. It takes our resources. So, you know, we know what we need to do. If you invest in building strong communities, in making sure that every kid gets a great education, in making sure that every victim of homicide, every traumatized person has access to treatment and ability to heal. You know, there was a report that was done by the Vera Institute, I think it was, if not last year, several years ago, that showed that African-American men who are more likely than others to be the victim of a serious crime are the least able to access these uh, services for victims. Let's make sure that every victim gets what they need. Let's, let's support families that are at risk. So we know what we need to do. Invest in schools, invest in jobs, invest in communities, build strong communities and families. Those are the things that prevent crime and violence, not something like the death penalty, which is happening after the fact. And as we said, it's sort of like a sideshow to what really needs to be done. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Now it's time for How to Handle the Dicks, where we tell you how we are coping with, you know, what's really just like a rough time. (laughs) Haji, what are you doing? Anything different or interesting? I would say that on Friday, the day that Trump Care spectacularly failed was maybe the first good day. Oh my God. We've had in a long time. Prachi, and I know I was smiling. <laughs> I was like, I'm having fun. It, yeah, it was the first day I felt a little bit lighter. I felt like hope. I felt all I, these emotions, these positive emotions that I have not felt. I did a lot. Of, I did a lot of laughing at work. I was like, oh, this is what it feels like to have fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I celebrated that privately. And I was like texting my friends, including you, being like— I was texting, but I was also at work, like next to you. Yeah. yeah. Well, yes, that's true. (laughs) No, I'm just— But I was like about after work plans. Like who wants to grab a drink? (laughs) So I had a drink with a friend after work. And then— for the rest of the weekend, I just, I just really focused on not doing that much. Um, and by what I, what I mean by focused on that is that I just didn't do much. Uh, I took it really easy. I stayed in uh, Saturday night. I just got my like apartment in order. I think I've probably said that before. I did my groceries. I did a bunch of writing. I also created like a little fitness plan to keep me on track with things because I am really enjoying 
like I found that I just need to work out for my own mental health and happiness. So yeah, just really kind of relaxing and not talking to many people this weekend is how I dealt with everything. You just had a nice weekend. Yeah. <laughs> um, mine is just a song. Light My Body Up by Nicki Minaj and David Guetta. That song is good, okay? <laughs> I've been dancing so much. I I don't want to be lame, but like Nikki, whenever Nikki has a good hit, I'm there for it. When David Guetta is good, he's good. Anyway, that's my recommendation. Listen to that song. I think that's a solid recommendation. So that's what we've been doing. But Prachi and I are just two women with four hands. We can't handle all the dicks in the world. And also we're running out of ideas. Like, we're creative, but we're not that creative. So if you have things you're doing to handle the dicks or ideas of how we can handle the dicks better, please tell us. And you can do this by emailing a voice note to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweeting us at hashtag bigtimedicks or saying it really loudly and hoping one of us hears. And thanks so much for listening to the 10th episode of Big Time Dicks. And thank you so much to Diane Russ Tierney for joining us. Please also rate and review us on iTunes so other people can find the podcast. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mondana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. And we featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader. And this episode was mixed by Jamie Colazzo. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send us a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday and who knows what the world will look like then.